I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Read down through verse 14. You can follow along as I read. First, Luke, first Luke. Yeah, first, it's first Luke. First Luke chapter 14. Don't go to second Luke. Luke chapter 14. Verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not make, and they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited both uh, you both will come and say to you, Give up your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited... Go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you have a luncheon or a dinner, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your your repayment. But when you have uh, given a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed since you will not have the means to repay. They will not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. How many religious people totally miss what God requires of those who follow Him? How many religious people spend their efforts defending their self-importance while disregarding the need for humility? How many professing Christians actually consider others to be more important than themselves? I'm not talking about a select group of others they consider to be more important than themselves. I'm just talking about people in general. How many professing Christians are better at being selfish than they are at being selfless? Selfishness always enlarges the importance of one's own life while diminishing the importance of somebody else. How many religious people are actually more like Pharisees than they are like Jesus? How many are unteachable, unwilling to take correction? Those who trust their own self-righteousness while they fail to show love for God and for others. How many Christians are quicker to believe the worst of a person rather than to believe the best of a person? How many church-going people actually lack the defining characteristics of a Christian? Compassion. 
humility in the heart of a servant. Those are the issues that Jesus addresses at the home of the Pharisee when he's invited over for a meal. He's invited to this meal and he observes those religious people in that gathering, those who were the religious leaders of the area. And he sees the total lack of Christian character, Christ-like character, godly character. During the meal, the religious leaders of the area, the lawyers and the Pharisees, are focused on Jesus, but not out of interest. And not even out of curiosity. They're focused on Jesus because they want to see Him do or say something that they can accuse Him of. They're not focused on Him because they love Him. They're not focused on Him because they believe Him. They want to accuse Him of violating the law. These are some of the religious leading figures of the land. And they've created an entire situation for the purpose of entrapping Jesus. Even the seating was arranged in such a way that the leaders could keep their eye on Jesus and put Jesus in the proximity of a man who needs healing to see if he would do it because it was a Sabbath day. It was all a setup. It's like a speed trap in Black Diamond. Don't ask me how I know these things. (laughs) I don't know what street it is, but don't drive down it. It's 25 miles an hour. So, (laughs) The, The one thing in that meal that seems to be out of place is a man sitting right in front of Jesus, a man with dropsy. It was a Sabbath. The word had spread among the Pharisees that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. In fact, the word had gotten out that on at least three different occasions, Jesus broke the Sabbath, or at least the tradition of the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. Back in Capernaum, he had cast the demon out of a man in the synagogue, and then left there, went over and healed Peter's mother-in-law in the house, both on the Sabbath day. Later, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, also in a synagogue and on the Sabbath day. And then in chapter four or 13, Jesus heals a woman who had been doubled over in pain for 18 years, and she was in the synagogue, and Jesus healed her also on the Sabbath day. Most every other person in the dinner had already believing the worst of Jesus, and he knew it. However, despite the opposition and the religious hypocrisy in that room, Jesus would show compassion and speak the truth even to those who hated him and rejected his message. So during the interest, uh, during the, the dinner, rather, Jesus is showing the superiority of compassion, the necessity of humility, the blessedness of generosity, and the cost of indifference. We'll get through the first three, Lord willing, this morning and get the next one next week. The last one next week. Through the dinner, Jesus will show us that the condition of your heart is exposed by your attitude and actions towards others. The condition of your heart is exposed by your attitude and actions toward others. 
He begins with the superiority of compassion in the first six verses. Here Jesus heals the man with dropsy. It's very similar to the story in chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, with the woman who was doubled over. Each case takes place in the synagogue. In the first, or in the, it takes place on the Sabbath, rather. The first took place in the synagogue, in which case the synagogue official was furious at the fact that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. He would go on to say there are six other days that you can heal, and, and his assumption is this woman could have lasted one more day, and Jesus could have healed her the next day instead of doing it on the Sabbath. But Jesus was trying to show in that case, and even in this case, the superiority of compassion. He revealed that the value of a human life is greater than their tradition of Sabbath. He asks them in the first case, how many of you have a, a donkey or an ox that you untie on the Sabbath and lead it to water? And the answer would be every one of them that had an animal. And in that society, most everybody would have some kind of a service animal. So they would all untie that and lead it to water on the Sabbath day. You wouldn't let the the animal go thirsty for the whole day because it was Sabbath. The crowds in the first case rejoiced. The event in chapter 14 is similar, but there are some significant differences. In chapter 13, it took place in the synagogue. Chapter 14, in the Pharisees' home. In chapter 13, it took the synagogue official by surprise. In chapter 14, the Pharisees are setting Jesus up and hoping he'll do something that will break the Sabbath in their eyes. In chapter 13, the bent woman appeared to be a normal part of the congregation and nobody actually paid attention to her until Jesus healed her. In chapter 14, it appears that the man with the dropsy was invited for that purpose only. In chapter 13, after Jesus heals the woman, the people rejoice. In chapter 14, after Jesus heals the man, the people don't say a word. Verse 1, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. The fact that the others were watching him closely indicates that this wasn't just lunch or dinner. This wasn't just a meal that they were inviting Jesus to, to share bread with uh, because he was a teacher or uh, they were just trying to show hospitality. There was something much more than that. The Pharisee here is not being magnanimous, he's being a hypocrite. He's being nice to Jesus' face and pretending to be his friend while he's looking for an opportunity to stab him in the back. Verse 2 says, And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. The man happens to be sitting right next to Jesus. This no doubt is by design. Dropsy was an abnormal accumulation of liquid in the cells of the body, particularly in the abdomen and and in the extremities, the arms and the legs. They would swell. It also caused extreme thirst. people, People that had it would continually try to drink to slake their thirst, but in the end it was causing the problem to get greater and greater and greater and their thirst was never satisfied. They'd be tremendously swollen. People in that condition were known to have circulation problems because of the swelling in their limbs and the swelling in their abdomen would create pressure on their internal organs and it was, if not healed, most often fatal. The Greco-Roman world believed that dropsy was, was caused by gluttony. 
For that reason, dropsy became a metaphor for greed. Diogenes compared dropsy to the lust for money, saying, As those with dropsy are filled with fluid, crave even more. In the same way, money lovers, though loaded with money, crave even more. Both crave to their own demise. The one suffering from physical dropsy would eventually die. It would be fatal, if not healed. But the Pharisees were suffering from a worse form of dropsy, a self-centered dropsy, a selfish dropsy. They craved the attention of others. And the more they got, the more they craved it. And it never did satisfy. It just added to their sinful condition. And this would be spiritually fatal if not healed. And the only one who could heal it would be Jesus. Jesus had compassion for the man with the dropsy. And he did what he said he would do back in chapter 13, verse 32. When he was threatened, saying that Herod wanted to kill him, Jesus said, you can go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. He says, I'm going to continue to heal until it's time to get to Jerusalem. So Jesus does heal the man. Neither Herod's threats nor the Pharisees' condemnation would prevent Jesus from doing what he came to do. So he takes control of the situation, and he asks the lawyers and the Pharisees a question. Verse 3, Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? These are the experts in the law. The Pharisees claim to keep the law completely, and the lawyers are the interpreters of the law. So he's asking them the question, Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they don't answer the question. The truth is they can't answer it. They may have an answer, but they can't really give it because if they say, yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, then there's nothing to accuse Jesus of. Then he wouldn't be doing anything wrong for them to get mad at, for them to accuse him of. And if they said yes, it would also indicate that they are hypocrites concerning their position on the Sabbath day. But if they say no, it's not legal to heal on the Sabbath, then they are saying that an animal is more important than a human being. And they can't let themselves say that either. The Jewish custom was to take care of animals on the Sabbath and to help in cases of emergency. Listen to Deuteronomy 22, verse 4. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fall down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall surely help him to raise them up. And in Exodus 23.5, it ratchets it up even more. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. In other words, if you see your, your neighbor, your friend, or your enemy's animal suffering, you go help it. If you're going to help your neighbor or your enemy's animal, if it's injured or otherwise in trouble, how could it be wrong to help a sick person? So Jesus responds to their silence. Verse 4, but they kept silent and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. Man's healed. 
The swelling goes away. All the cells begin to function normally. The circulation is working again. If it was caused by gluttony, even the sin of gluttony is taken away. Jesus has healed the man. Then He sends him away. Sends him away most likely because Jesus knows that the whole thing was a setup and it really wasn't about the man. It was about what Jesus would do. And it's not important that that man be here for the next exchange that takes place. Then Jesus drives home his point. Verse 5. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath? On the Sabbath day. Well, obviously the answer is no one would have a, a son, a daughter, an animal of theirs fall into the well and do nothing about it because it was the Sabbath. No one in their right mind would have their son fall into a well and walk over to the well on the Sabbath and say, Son! Son! Keep treading water! I'll be back tomorrow morning! I love you! No one would do that. The answer is obvious. Everyone would help. Verse 16. And they could make no reply to this. They were silenced. They're silenced because the answer to the question that Jesus just asked about saving their their child or their animal reveals their inadequate interpretation of the law. They prided themselves on how religious they were. These Pharisees tithed of the the herbs that grew in their garden. They fasted three times a week. They enlarged the, the pouches on their forehead and on their arms that contained Scripture so people would see it. They appeared to be better at keeping the law than anyone else. However, they completely missed the most important aspects of the law. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The truth was, they didn't love Jesus, and they didn't love the man with dropsy. He was a tool that they were trying to use to trap Jesus. In fact, they probably felt like the man with dropsy deserved it which was their attitude for most people who were sick. The condition of their heart was exposed by their actions and their attitude toward others. The condition of our heart has a way of exposing who we really are. Or it has a way of being exposed, rather, by how we treat people. What we say to them and about them. I'm not talking about your actions and attitudes towards a select group of people. I'm talking about your attitudes and actions towards people in general. I'm talking about your attitudes and actions towards people you disagree with. When Jesus told us to love one another, He wasn't qualifying it by those whom we like. Or those who like us. Or those who are like us. This brings us to the second characteristic. From the superiority of compassion, we move to the necessity for, of humility. 
the necessity of humility. At the same dinner, Jesus exposes the pride that existed in the hearts of people. And it's the pride that keeps people from being compassionate. It's the lack of humility that keeps people from loving one another. Verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. So Jesus had sat back and watched the people as they came in and, and where they're saying, okay, where's the, where's the host? The, the, wherever the host is sitting, the seats closer to, to him, that's the seats of honor. Let me, let me sit there. They're vying for position and Jesus knowing man perfectly and knowing their hearts knew that it was their pride that was causing them to do these things. They wanted to, to take the spot that was most advantageous to them. What would elevate their social status the most? So Jesus takes the opportunity to speak to them about something important. And he says, verses 8 and 9, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give up your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. This counsel that Jesus is giving, it echoes Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand the place of, of, of great men, for it is better that it be said to you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. So you can picture the scene. Man arrives early, begins to look at the seating arrangements, he discovers where the host is going to sit. And he takes a seat right next to him. So this will be the spot. All the eyes will be on me. They'll see me next to the host. They'll think I'm somebody important. This is bound to raise my social status. And he sits down. Grabs a glass of water. Begins to sip some water. Thinking to himself, imagining that all the people are looking at him and wondering, who, who is this man? He must be important because he's right next to the host. Takes a piece of bread out of the bread basket, puts some butter on it, takes a bite, and just as he bites it, he hears a, feels a tap on his shoulder. Turns, it's the host. He thinks to himself, this is it. The host is going to introduce himself to me. This is going to be wonderful. Everybody's looking. And the host says, excuse me, you need to get up. This seat was reserved for somebody else. There's a seat down at the end of the table. Five minutes ago, the guy couldn't wait for everybody to be watching him. Now he wishes he was invisible. He doesn't want anybody to see him. He slinks away to the empty chair, realizing he is not as important as he thought he was. Or as important as he wanted to be believed to be. In San Simeon, California... There's Hearst Castle. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've been there. Beautiful castle. Tucked into the mountains overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Built by William Randolph Hearst. Newspaper tycoon. Among the dozens of rooms in this massive castle, you can tour it. Among these rooms, there's a dining room. It's a huge, ornate dining room with a massive table that seats 22 people. During the time that Hearst 
stay at the castle, he would often invite celebrities, politicians, other influential people to the castle. And they would stay at the castle in one of the many rooms there, and they and they could stay as long as they wanted. Some would stay for a few days, some would stay for a few weeks, some even longer. And every night there would be a formal dinner in the dining room, complete with placards that tells you where to sit. It was said that Hearst never asked anyone to leave the castle. They could stay as long as they want. But Hearst also believed that it was time for certain people to leave. And the way he got that message across was their name would move further and further down the table until one day they came in and their name wasn't on the table. So people began to realize, if you don't want to be embarrassed, you better leave before your name gets to the end of the table. Jesus goes on to tell the dinner guests in verse 10, But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so when the one who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. He said, It's much better to sit at the lower end, the end of the table, and be asked to move up than the other way around. So much better to be sitting in coach and be asked to move up to first class than to sit down in a first class seat and have the cabin steward say, Sir, you don't have a ticket for this seat. You need to go back to your seat. Don't ask me how I know that. Now, this is important. Jesus is not here giving advice to people on how to avoid being embarrassed at the next wedding feast they're invited to. Nor is he trying to give them a subtle way to to be exalted in the eyes of others. He's not trying to tell them a way to have their egos artificially inflated. Rather, Jesus is giving them an important spiritual principle that has eternal consequences. And that is, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is not a novelty for the Christian. It is a defining characteristic of a Christian. The Christian who will not humble himself is showing that he is not really a Christian. Humility is a necessity. It was what characterized Jesus Christ and it was to characterize us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. God is opposed to the proud. I don't think most of us have thought about it for too long. What does it mean to be opposed by God? To be in opposition to God. The proud are in opposition to God. They are going head to head with God. They are on opposite sides with God. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Our world is not a big proponent of humility. Some of the biggest celebrities and the best athletes are also the most proudful. The most boastful. But God is not impressed. God opposes the proud. Because the proud think they don't need God. The proud think they can do it all on their own or they can make up their own rules. They can decide how they want to live their lives. And how dare God interfere with their plans? Christian, do you truly understand the dangers of pride? Do you recognize it? Do you recognize the tendency for pride in your life? Do you battle it? Do you merely acknowledge humility as a Christian virtue but don't really embrace it? Or do you seek to practice humility? Do you seek to have the mind of Christ who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant? Do you consider yourselves to be more important than others? Let me put it this way. Do you complain when others don't treat you the way that you want to be treated? Jesus was humble. The reason Jesus never felt the need to defend himself was because he was humble. The reason when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return, is because he was humble. You might remember the story when King David is leaving town. Absalom wants to kill him and he's leaving town. And there's a man standing on a hill throwing rocks at David. He's the king. And one of David's men say, should I go kill him? Remember what David's response was? No. Maybe God sent him to throw rocks at me. That's a humble man. When the king is being pelted with rocks by a disgruntled person and says, leave him alone because maybe this was God's intent for me. The condition of our hearts exposed or is exposed in how we treat others. The condition of our heart is exposed in how we react to others. The condition of our heart is exposed with what we say to and about other people. What's the What are your reactions? What are your attitudes and actions reveal about your heart? He talked about the superiority of compassion. He spoke about the necessity for humility. And then he brings up the blessedness of generosity. Verses 12 through 14. The third scene, still at dinner, Jesus continues the same theme. But this time he's not talking to the invited guests, he's talking to the host. 
In verse 12 it says, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, that leader of the Pharisees, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your neighbors or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. Next time you're going to have a party, rewrite your invitation list. Don't invite your family, friends, business associates, wealthy neighbors. Jesus is not saying here, never have a gathering with your family and friends. It's not what he's saying. But knowing the heart of the host, Jesus understands that the guest list that he has all have the capacity, with the exception of Jesus and the man with dropsy, all have the ability to reciprocate one day. And that's why they would do it. They would invite the people who could then invite them to something. In this case, it was the pride of the host that was in view. He invites those who would do the same for him in the future, those who could somehow elevate him, those who could somehow help his social advancement. So his whole guest list is self-focused. It's a potential benefit to him. Everybody on the guest list is a potential benefit to him somehow. He has no interest in those who can't benefit him. Therefore, proving he doesn't have the mind or heart of Christ. He's not willing to humble himself and concede to men of low estate. Jesus goes on and tells him who to invite, verse 13. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Can you imagine what that Pharisee was thinking at that moment? Here's who you should invite. You should invite the, the poor. Wait a minute. The poor? The wealthy you are, the more right with God you are. That was his mind. God will bless us with wealth when we are right with him. Why would I invite the poor? You should invite the crippled and the lame and the blind. Whoa, time out. Those people are cursed by God. You want me to invite people who are cursed by God? That was the mindset of the average Pharisee in that day. If you were crippled or you were blind or you were lame, that is because God cursed you. Remember, even the disciples felt that way when they were walking through Jerusalem. And they saw the man begging by the gate of the temple. And the disciples, in all honesty, asked Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Obviously, his blindness is a result of somebody's sin. And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But that was the thought process. Jesus says, invite these people who can do nothing for you. Verse 14, here's why. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says to this Pharisee, if your heart's right, God's going to reward you in the end. We get so caught up in living for this life without any thought of future reward. 
We get so caught up in storing up treasures on earth where moths and ruths corrupts and thieves break in and steal and give so little thought to storing up treasures in heaven where neither moth, I think I said moths before, moth nor rust corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. Jesus is not saying, listen, if you invite the right people, you get to go to heaven. What he's revealing in this whole dinner is the condition of your heart comes out, is revealed in your attitudes and actions. And your attitudes and your actions are already are either revealing a selfish, prideful attitude, in which case you lack the characteristics of one who belongs to God, or your attitudes and actions are showing a humility and a compassion which do reflect the heart of God. These religious leaders, these religious leaders of the land who thought they had it all together are in so much worse shape than the man with dropsy. They were characterized by greed and selfishness but couldn't even recognize it. God would have had to swell up their bodies for them to even have a clue. Jesus is revealing their heart. Exposing the wickedness that's there. Revelation 22.12 speaks of future reward. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Jesus again is not saying that the way to heaven is to have dinner for poor, crippled, blind, lame people. He's speaking of the revelation of the heart. How we treat people. Our attitudes and our actions reveal our hearts. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. The dinner Jesus was invited to was filled with religious people who didn't actually know God. And that was evident in their attitudes and their actions. So Jesus uses the opportunity to show them the superiority of compassion, the necessity of humility, and the blessedness of generosity. God has graciously given us His Word to reveal to us what our lives should look like. What a Christian life is to be. What our attitudes and our actions are to be like. And they're to reflect Christ. So, we need to, periodically, probably more often than periodically, examine our hearts. And see, are we portraying Christ? Are we showing the world Christ? Or are we just hypocrites? Who have all the right words? Who tithe of mint and dill? Who fast three times a week? 
who have big pouches full of scriptures that we've memorized, but never put into practice. Your attitudes and your actions truly expose your heart. Let's be men and women with a heart of Christ. And let's let the world see it. Let's let one another see it and hear it. So that God is glorified. And we will be known as disciples of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know that we are but dust. You know the struggles that as human beings in a sinful world we struggle with. Father, you know the the subtlety of pride that sneaks into the hearts of your children and take over. Father, the attitudes and the actions that have been so comfortable in the lives of your people, yet so offensive to you. Father, let us, help us, live the life that you called us to live. Father, let us be people who are characterized by compassion for one another. Let us be people who are characterized by humility, generosity. Father, let us not just be loving and kind to those whom we like or those who we are like. But Father, let us show the love of Jesus Christ to everyone and especially to one another. Father, would you be kind enough to expose a heart that needs to repent. And Father, you would be glorified in your church Father, if there's one here that doesn't know you, would you please bring that person to repentance today? Show them their need for saving grace. Father, be they religious, be they irreligious, will you bring them to saving faith today? I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.